Assalamu and welcome to another Hujjat podcast. I'm your host, Ahmed Berkul, and with me is my co-host, uh, Alia Padadi. Assalamu alaikum. Waalaikum salam. How's it going, Alia? Good, good. I feel invigorated after that conversation. It was an absolutely amazing conversation. Uh, we just finished recording a podcast with uh, two very special guests, Sheikh Noor Muhammad, uh, a Ghanaian uh, Shia scholar who now lives in Birmingham and has lived across many countries in the world and Ibrahim Sincere, spoken word artist um, and a social activist based in Northwest London. Um, really good conversation, Ali. I, I feel it was like way more enlightening than perhaps I'd expected. I knew that these are, of course, like two really smart people, um, yeah. but definitely like blew my mind away. Yeah, for sure. And I think the big thing that it showed me was this is just the start of the conversation. So we just touched like the top of the iceberg here and there is so much more learning and unlearning to be done. And this is such a good and exciting place to start. And I think for listeners at home, if you are listening to this, go into the podcast with firstly an open mind, um, listen to the stories, the real life experiences that our two very esteemed guests hold um, and feel free to ask questions, to forward us any questions on social media, on at Alhadi Youth. Uh, on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat, I believe. Um, and even get in touch with us over email. Our email is hardyyouth.org. Um, if there is something maybe you want to ask or if there's any other guests or topics that you'd like to hear more from. But don't want to stop you from... Oh, sorry, go for it. I was going to say, make sure to check out our reading list. We'll link it on our social media pages where we will detail some of the books you can read to learn more about the subjects spoken on the podcast and some of the websites and Instagram accounts you can follow to keep up to date. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, enjoy the podcast, everyone, and hope to see you again. Asalaamu Alaikum and welcome to another episode of Hujjat Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to be Back with you all again after the blessed month of Shah Ramadan, where a lot of us had a very spiritually uplifting, but a very different month for sure. Um, throughout the holy month, we of course had the Keys to Qadr series where we were joined by none other than Sheikh Noor Muhammad, who I'm very pleased to say will be on today's podcast. But before I introduce the Sheikh and our other guest, Brother Ibrahim Sincere, um, first time I'm co-hosting with Sister Alia. Asalaamu Alaikum. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Very, very good to have you on as well. Um, and Alia, today we're going to be discussing kind of a lot of what's been happening in the news recently. It's been obviously a very turbulent couple of months, um, particularly since the, the murder of George Floyd in Minnesota and the USA. Um, it's something where we don't just want to skim over. We want to delve into this topic and we want to analyze it from a more kind of internal perspective as how we as Muslims living in the Western world can really evaluate how far we've come as diaspora Muslims, diaspora immigrants to the West, and really what what more needs to be done to reform the way we think about um, racism that does exist within the Muslim community in the West. Um, so joining us today, I'm very honored to say we have Sheikh Noor Muhammad, who is the resident alim in Birmingham uh, Mosque. Um, he's been living in the UK now for, I think, what, three years, Sheikh, three or four years. Yeah, yeah, four years. Yeah. Oh my God, how's how's it been so far? How, how would you say compared to all the other places you've stayed in? Alhamdulillah, it's been good. It's been good. I mean, the community is amazing community, very receptive, you know. But yeah. of course, before moving to Birmingham, I'm used to the type of the community, so it was very easy. And I had traveled here before in the holy month of Ramadan for 15 nights, so pretty yeah. much I knew the community before moving to the Birmingham. Alhamdulillah, it's been good. So many activities in the community, and you hope and pray Allah accept on our behalf. You know, yeah, I mean, Alhamdulillah. Uh, and Ibrahim, Ibrahim, sincere, thank you for joining us. Ibrahim, born and raised uh, in Harrow, one of the boys from from mosque from from early days. But Alhamdulillah, the sort of levels and I don't want to say stardom because I don't <laughs> I don't want to say anything uh, which might overly flatter you or maybe embarrass you. Um, but the sort of levels, Alhamdulillah, the sort of work you've done over the last few years at such a young age is incredible. Um, your spoken word um, kind of work, your artistic work, and also your social activism. You were speaking at a Black Lives Matter rally a few days ago. How did that come about? Um, yeah, so as you guys know, just a quick correction. I wasn't actually born in, in, in the UK. Um, I oh, was no way. Mombasa. Yeah, yeah, I was born in Mombasa. Um, so my, my family, they were um, all pretty much born and raised in, in Mogadishu, Somalia. Um, mm. As the civil war sort of started in Somalia, um, 
many people move to different different um different parts of the world but um first we moved to kenya i was born in kenya uh, and then we came to the uk when i was one year when i was one so pretty much yeah um, just a slight 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 bit of background there but um so regarding the harrow um blm rally so as you know a lot of um as a result of this a lot of local organizations are starting to um starting to uh, organize as well um there was a confusion as to whether uh members who were supporting the movement should go to central london on saturday because as you know the um edo and a lot of uh, people from the far right were planning to come from all over the uk uh, to uh, uh protect the statue of of winston churchill um so i mean the advice at the time uh, that was going around was to pretty much um organize within your within your local areas and not to fall into the trap um of 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 what was being laid out uh because as you know, when it comes to protests and things like this, most of the time it is it, it is going to be the black youth that will face the brunt of br uh, police brutality, um, either during and also after. And a lot of people have started um, seeing uh, police turn up at houses. Um, so there's an organisation in Harrow called Nomad, um, Nations of Migration, um, uh, aiding the di diaspora. I hope I got that right. And they pretty much um their youth-led organisation, um, and they're quite connected with some of the different movements. So they um. I've done a lot of work with them, so they invited me to come and say some words on their behalf. Cool. I mean, it's the sort of work you've done is is absolutely incredible. Um, I remember you tweeted a few days ago, um, kind of growing up in Rainers Lane, which for those who don't know is an area in and around Harrow in northwest London. Um, and one of the experiences you had as a young boy, um, I hope I get this right, but something along the lines of um, uh, a lady, a Somalian lady wearing full abaya, I believe, or hijab, who was had kind of a, a, like a, a run-in with the police, and had young boys who were there and the young boys tried to defend her, something like that. Um, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. Um, yeah. What I wanted to understand is, so you've obviously been born and brought up as a Shia Muslim living in, in this, maybe not born, <laughs> but in this community here, mm. um, what are the experiences you've had in the last 25 odd years which has led you up to this point now where you understand the circumstances that we're now in and how does that then translate to your work as as a young muslim um so firstly in terms of uh i mean i i, I, just, I don't think i've done um much work i think there's a lot that is yet to be done and i'm sort of taking this sort of opportunity to increase my um to sort of like relight that fire and reignite that fire so as you said yeah we i, I was pretty much raised on a council estate in rainers lane and being uh being raised on a council estate you will have many um run-ins with the police and you will start to notice um the way that the police treat people of color um treat young people of color growing up in this country um and another thing that meant is that uh I think within within the Khaji communities, especially um, in the UK, I think um, a lot of them are quite middle class. So um, having that difference in terms of both both race and class, I think led to a, an almost um, like intersection of of, uh, of experiences growing up in the Khaji community. But I wasn't sure if your question was related specifically spe specifically to experiences within the Khaji community or experiences in London in general. I don't think really within the Kodja community alone, but as as I mean, let's say as a young Muslim growing up in in either the Kodja community or in general society, has there been kind of some sort of environment which has made you see uh, the exist existential racism that we face both on the streets and in the mosque, and like has that then inspired you to to, to do kind of the sort of work um, that that you're now involved in? Definitely, yeah. So, like that that example that you mentioned, or that that event that you mentioned, um, where there was a Somali lady who um, had a fight. A Somali lady, one of my neighbours, who had a fight with um, uh, with a white lady that used to cause a lot of trouble in the area. Um, the police came. They spoke to the lady for two minutes. First, they spoke to the white lady. Spoke to her for two minutes, and then they went went straight to the house of the Somali lady and they tried to put her in cuffs. Hassan ran downstairs, and there was a lot of commotion. Um, and about seven or eight police officers had them to pin down to the floor including the lady and elderly lady in the community so um it's small experiences like that that i guess like politicize you as a young person and politicize me um and as somebody who i mean even in in the way that i was raised uh as muslims but also um i would say that my family have always been quite political or my 
my dad was uh, quite political as well so he instilled in me you know um uh appreciation for figures like Malcolm X um and of course uh, uh as she as we have appreciation for um for 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 the one revolutionary um, Imam Sene Islam yeah. yeah all of these experiences combined with our ideologies um sort of politicized I'd, I'd say that they politicized me in, in the way that they have and how do you think your Islamic identity in particular has kind of intersected with your black identity? Had both of them informed your activism in the same amount or is there one that really guides you? Um, I think there's an intersection there. Now me, um, like, uh, uh, as you guys would be able to tell, like, so I'm mixed um, and I don't always, uh, well, I don't, I don't pass as black, I guess, like sometimes people may consider me Somali, sometimes people may consider me Asian. So um, sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. So my experiences still won't be uh, as bad or as vivid as those who are, you know, outright, um, 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 obviously black and their experiences will be different and, and their experiences will be worse than mine. Um, but I guess like, uh, especially as as Shias, we have that, um, we have that model Imam Hussein Salam. Um, who was uh, was the symbol for fighting against justice and oppression, and that is the first thing that we learn ideologically. And then everything else that you learn through your experiences, you learn how to sort of apply that to your life, um, and you learn how people like Malcolm X applied those um, applied those ideologies and uh, uh, and those teachings um, indirectly or directly. So I think it's the ideology is there and it lays the foundations, and then the experiences that you go through in your life, you can. Um, yeah, Sheikh. Just a quick one. So, Ibrahim mentioned kind of the 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 message of Imam Hussein al-Islam and and kind of how we take inspiration from him and and his message and his revolutionary spirit and standing against oppression and standing up for justice um, and take that out into the world and tackle the day to day grassroots issues and the establishmental issues that we see on a larger level. When it comes to the imams of the Ahl al-Bayt in general, Sheikh, what, what practical examples can you think of in, in the history or the lives of the imams, salawat alayhi and then, you know, for us to look at as youth, as like Western, uh, young, secularized youth, and then, you know, be inspired by and from? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa ali Muhammadin wa ajjin farajahum. Thank you so much, uh, Brother Ahmad and my dear sister. And of course, it's indeed a great pleasure to see my brother Ibrahim Sincere virtually so having this very important discussion. And of course, my thanks to Al-Hadi Youth. No doubt, Al-Hadi Youth is very active and reaching so many people across the globe. Inspired by your work, keep it up. And our support are with you and our doors are with you, inshallah. That no doubt. coming from you, you know, Sheikh. No, no, it's a great <laughs> pleasure. Al-Hadi, mashallah, you've been very active. It's not been long ever since the formation or the establishment of Al-Hadi youth. But Alhamdulillah, we've seen you guys have been productive and you've been creative. So keep going, inshallah. Sure. As lovers and followers of Ahl al-Bayt, alayhim as-salatu as as you know very well, they are our role models. And there is no better door to knock if you are faced with challenges than to knock the doors of Ahl al-Bayt, alayhim ala fatahiyyati wa sana. And as we all know, they are the true manifestations of the beautiful names and attributes of Almighty Allah on earth. And as we recite in the ziyara, they are the asma'ullah al-husna, the beautiful names of Allah. So we need to emulate them and we need to follow their footsteps. If you examine the lives of our beloved imams, especially the latter ones, you know, you realize that they practically, not just by ways of mouth, dealt with racism or discrimination or prejudice. They showed 
as the way in practice. And you know, Ahl al-Bayt, they would only do if it is sanctioned by Almighty Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and by the Holy Prophets. So you look at Quran, for instance, before we even go to the lives of Ahl al-Bayt. Allah chants the praises of Luqman al-Hakim. Allah called Luqman Hakim. Said we've given him wisdom. We've given him hikmah. Luqman was a man of color. And Allah praised Luqman so high in glorious Quran. When our beloved Prophet Muhammad was sent with this message, and in this message of liberation, this universal message that we are proud of, that we call Islam, the first migration of the Muslim Ummah was to Ethiopia before the main migration to the holy city of Medina. Where did they go in Ethiopia? They went and they were welcomed by Najashi, this king of Abyssinia, who prophets really, whom prophets spoke high of him, that he would never allow injustice in whatever form to take place. And he gave Muslims asylum. He welcomed them. He gave them places. He's a man from Africa. It's a lesson for all of us to take on board. Now, our own imams, we do not have personalities like the Ahlul Bayt, alayhim ala fattahiyyati wa thana. It's Quran and them. They are walking Quran. They are manifested Quran. Now, if you look at their lives, as I said, they destroyed discrimination, prejudice, and racism without going too far. You begin with the mother of Imam al-Jawad, You know, she was a woman of color. You know, the mother of Imam al-Jawad, Jawad al-A'imma. If you really want to learn creativity, knock the door of Imam al-Jawad. And scholars, when they discussed maturity and early growth, they look at the life of Jawad al-A'imma. You know, his mother was a woman of color. And not only, of course, her mother, you know her name, Sabika Tunubiya. Now you go to the mother of Imam al-Hadi, and luckily we are here with al-Hadi youth, Sumanatul Maghribiya. This lady was from Africa. The mother of Imam al-Hadi. So al-Hadi youth, your inspiration is Imam al-Hadi, salawatullahi wa salamahu alayhi. And all the youth, yeah. I think yeah. Was it intentional that the imams went out of their way to marry these women from different tribes and from different races? Was it meant to be a lesson for us or was it more of a norm in the society at the time? Thank you. It wasn't a norm in the society at that time. And imams did that because you know the histories of Arabs during Jahiliya and some continued with that jahiliyyah, even after the coming of Islam, after the teachings of our beloved prophets, they saw segregations, they saw discriminations. And so they did not just talk, they walk the talk as they said, our beloved imams. Otherwise, they would have married any other woman in Arabia and no one would refuse them, isn't it? But they said, no, let us go beyond the boundary and teach people lesson yeah. yeah there's so many so many questions that come to mind yeah <laughs> when we talk about the 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 traditions that uh discuss that a, a lot of the the latter imams alayhi salatu wasalam being black or being yeah. of african origin and i mean just to give you an example we we put up a, a poll today on on our social media we asked the question do you think Shia communities would confidently accept traditions that some of the imams had darker skin and African heritage? 
Over one third said that they would not be confident that our communities would accept that the imams had darker skin. Now, just to kind of put it into proportion or into perspective rather, if we allow the youth as a small sample size, we have a couple of thousand followers online. And if, if our followers who predominantly are very, of course, I would imagine more liberal thinking, more forward thinking, believe that nearly half, well, nearly half of them believe that the community would find it hard to accept that the imams were dark skin. How do we then kind of ingrain this into day-to-day -day practice? Because that concept alone is hard for some people to swallow. And if I may ask a follow-on question as well, how do you, with all due respect, as a, as a black person, as a, a, a Shia scholar of African origin, how does that make you feel when you hear something like that? Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Brother Ahmed. No doubt, many people will find it difficult to accept the reality that some of our Imams will not look like the majority of Muslims, if you like. I think we need to go back to basics, Habibi. What you see out there is as a result of what we've been taught, how we were brought up. And I will tell you about myself, even as a black person, when I was growing, when I was going to Madrasa, we will only be told about Bilal, you know, Bilal. That's it. I got to know about John when I became a follower or one of the followers of Ahlul Bayt, So it begins with the basics, really. I think with a lot of awareness, and like what we are doing now, what Al-Hadi is doing now, some may find it very uncomfortable, but I think it's time we get out of our comforts and follow the footsteps of Ahlul Bayt. Absolutely. And by so doing, we should be able to reach out to people and to make people start thinking seriously. So if you ask of myself, you know, Alhamdulillah, I've been leading as resident alim for many years now, Alhamdulillah different communities, you know, of course, started with black community and ended up with Pakistanis, for instance, Iranians, Khojas, for instance, you know. When I started, it wasn't that easy, but Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, I managed to sail through. Mm. And I've seen what some of my people are going through and I don't want them to go through that. And so therefore, the reality is that some of the imams of Ahlul Bayt are not the way the majority of Muslims or Shias think. A typical example is the Imam of our time, isn't it? Yeah. We can't refute the fact that most part of him will be leaning to darker color or black. And Sheikh, yeah. how do you think we as a community, and especially us as youth, because inshallah, we'll be the future leaders of the community, how can we best prepare to serve that imam? How do we prepare ourselves? How do we prepare the elders in our family? How do we better improve ourselves so that we are ready? Fantastic. Obviously, you see, Islam does not expect us to pick and choose. Islam wants us to accept it as a holistic way of life. Yes, we've got choices on how to do certain things when it comes to social matters, when it comes to putting things in your life. But when it comes to speaking and creating awareness and teaching, we need to go full force. You know, the fact that we learn about Bilal doesn't mean that our life 100% should be the way Bilal used to be. No. So as youth of our communities, I think it's high time we start not just focusing on only Bilal and John. Mm -hmm. We need to look at the history of Islam. Sheikh, you know something yeah. interesting. Yeah. So 
Um, yeah. Sister Amina Inlows, of course, has a really good yeah. Um, article. Piece, yeah. yeah, she's yeah. got a really good piece. The name is Racial Othering in Shi'i Sacred History, um, focusing on John, of course, from Karbala. And yeah. in inverted commas, it says the African slave. And yeah. it then says the ethnicities of the Twelvers, the Twelve Imams. What's interesting, of course, is a lot of the time, and maybe frustratingly, every time someone in the history of Islam who is of African origin or black is discussed, there's always that caveat of the liberated slave or the former slave or the freed <laughs> slave. And I find that frustrating. So, for example, I was reading this piece by Sister Amina, and it says that 30 years prior to the Battle of Karbala, um, John was freed as a slave. And I think it was one of the companions um, of, uh, I think, uh, Imam Ali, who actually was, uh, you know, was the owner of, of John and had actually died. So this was long after. Uh, Ibrahim, I'm going to bring you in here, if you don't mind. How do you find that? Or how do you feel, let's say, from kind of a semantical perspective or from perspective of ideologically discussing certain characters in Islamic history and talking about them as the former slave or the free slave or, you know, do you see what I mean? Kind of that, from yeah. that point of view. Um, so I'm, I'm not a historian myself, but in the little that I have researched, um, I think you'll find that the, the transatlantic slave trade, um, when the Europeans sort of, uh, uh, were engaging in slave trade and colonialism was highly, highly racialized. Um, in the uh, in the Arab slave trades, um, it wasn't as racialized. So you had people from Turkey who were slaves. You had people um, from, from from Persia, X, Y, and Z that were considered slaves at the time, and and Arabs themselves. Um, so I think what it seems has hap has happened, and through my discussions with people who have sort of I guess uh, researched and studied into the history quite a lot, is that many scholars from more contemporary times have sort have sort of taken the um, taken the like racialized uh, 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 version of the transatlantic slave trade and almost backwards projected that into history so that they assume that every single uh, every single black person who was uh, prevalent in, in in Arabia at the time must have been a slave um, which is not correct and then in cases where people were slaves in their past and then um, they were uh, emancipated and came out of slavery um, I mean it it is telling if that continues to remain a defining uh, a, a defining factor or, or a way that you continue to define them as you said uh, many 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 years after after the fact um, it's almost as if people struggle to remove that label uh, from when they see a, a black person in history yeah I think you're definitely right and I've done a bit of research on the um, Arab slave trade in particular and how Islam doesn't have this racialized perspective on slavery, but in fact, how it did historically happen, it did happen to be that African slaves were the majority um, who were traded. Um, but I think something that both of you brought up that's really interesting is we almost need to decolonize our Islamic learning curriculum, because like you say, we're always taught about two figures, John and Bilal, and this is how we are kind of taught black Islamic history. And Ibrahim, I was wondering, how do you think, especially maybe you growing up, what is a different way you would have wanted to learn about Islamic history, especially in Africa? So, on on for example, um, when when we're speaking about the um, Imam uh, Imams al um, we noticed that over the years and for many years, it has been widely accepted. Like you would see a painting, even of all twelve Imams, and all of them are white. Um, and on mm -hmm. on on members and during lectures, people have no issue with describing them as you know their skin was very white, like milk, in a very like. Uh, uh, in a very uh, praise, uh, praiseful manner, um, and nobody ever has an issue with that. As soon as people start to sort of bring the facts forward and say, "Look, this is where their mothers were from. This is this is what their skin complexion was," people then all of a sudden start to say, "Oh, oh color doesn't matter. Color doesn't matter." It's hey, true. I'm just going to throw something at you. Sorry to interrupt you, but do you think this triggers like a certain generation? Let me let me let me give you an example. Like. Of course, we traditionally hear a lot of this tahrif, like this misconstruing on the member. And I know I'm conscious we've got a sheikh here. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to pull any strings. Which might... No, of course, Sheikh Noor is, is, is one of a kind. But there is, of course, across the Muslim world for like centuries, there must have been some sort of masala or like, you know, that sort of <laughs> slight, yeah, buttering up of a certain character or fictionalization of the way an imam looked. Of course, we've seen that painting. 
Um, and, you know, where, like you said, the 12 imams were all of fair skin. But do you think it's a generational thing? Like, do you think it's something which will eventually die out and where eventually our millennial generation will be the elders of the community? We won't have that sort of bias? Or do you think it's, it's different? To, to an extent, because our generation has inherited the same, uh, the same idea that light skin is beautiful, and so when describing the imams, they must uh, 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 they they were of course known to be um, uh, beautiful, so therefore they must be light skin, and that 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 will always continue because um, within our generation, definitely that that idea is there. In terms of open racism and open insults, aren't there as much, but those subtle ideas that we inherit are still there. What I was going to go on to say is, yeah, color doesn't matter um, in the first place. But when history has been changed and uh, 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 complexions and paintings have been altered, uh, if, if, even if in the first place they shouldn't have been painted, but now that they have, within the environment and context of communities like this, um, Arab communities, Asian communities, um, even African communities where light skin is seen as beautiful, it then becomes very damaging to present. Um, false images uh, uh, of the Ahlul Bayt al-Islam and all historical figures. And the same thing, as we know, happened with um, Nabi Isa, Jesus al-Islam, who in the Bible is described as uh, his feet were, the, were bronze color and his hair was like wool. Um, for many years, nobody had issues of the, painting, the paintings of Jesus being um, a white man that looks like he came from Europe. But as soon as people start to look into the historical facts, all of a sudden color doesn't matter. And Sheikh, why do you think this does happen on the member? Why do scholars sometimes, like Ibrahim mentioned, refer to the imams constantly as lighter skinned? And why yes. is that associated with divinity? Yeah, so I think as I was mentioning earlier on, and of course as Brother Ahmed and Brother Ibrahim also put it, I think it is something inherited, you know? You know, when you grow as you study, you just take whatever is given to you, you know? You don't process it, you don't look into it. But gone are those days, you know, people start now looking into things very seriously and trying to process it properly and reach out to those great scholars who are not biased and who are willing to, you know, tell you what is the reality. And I mean, like this whole point of the Ahlul Bayt, who got married to African ladies, you know, I'm sure many years ago, this was not a discussion, you know, people accepted it. Uh, as it was. But some years ago, maybe 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, this discussion has been coming back and forth. And currently, it's a big discussion there. I think it is the responsibility of every scholar who goes to the member or who stands by the podium or pulpit to give words of God to people to be very careful as to what he or she teaches people. Because whatever you say, you are going to be accountable and you are going to be responsible. And very important, we need to scrutinize the informations we have before we share with people. Because uh, I've seen situations, for instance, when it comes to the question of John, you know, and how John is described normally when the Messiah of John is being recited, you know, some people normally will feel offended. You know, I've seen, I've been to a situation where people were really offended how John was described in the Messiah of Ahlul Bayt, which was not from Ahlul Bayt really, it was just somebody added, you know. And Sheikh, you know when you did your Islamic learning, um, I'm not sure where you did your Islamic learning, yeah. but I presume maybe in Qum, yeah. did you find this racism or this racial bias was ingrained into what you learned as a scholar? Does it go as, does this racism go as high as um, like that? No, no, learning? thank you, thank you. You know, normally during the studies, you wouldn't really come across these kind of things, you know? Because when you go to study in a house, be it in Qom, I was in Qom, or in Najaf, or in Lebanon, or wherever we have our house at Al-Alimiyah, you know, you get to really do the right stuff, you know? What influences is the environment, you know? If I look at that scholar, it's heavyweight, it's heavy duty. You know, you find sometimes when you graduate, you don't go back to the books you were taught, during your studies in Hausa, but you're going to be looking at the speakers. What are they saying? Because this is what the masses want to hear. So therefore, let him just take this particular speaker and try to follow how he teaches and what he says without necessarily scrutinizing it to see whether it's authentic or not authentic. So what I will say is in Hausa, we, we get to learn the right stuff. 
But when we come out, sometimes not all, of course, some of us tend to forget those right stuff. We then just to copy from the people we hear that they've got like a big following. Let's just take from them. Let's just tell our people and people will be happy about it. Yeah. I think it's very interesting, honestly, the, the sort of progress we've made on this conversation so far. But I think, obviously, given the sort of audience we have, the main crux or the main goal, inshallah, of hopefully what we try to achieve from the end of this discussion is to understand practical steps that we can take moving forward. Now, if with your permission, I'm just going to share a couple of um, responses that we got. So we today put out a question um, and we had dozens of responses about how youth can work to eradicate racism within the community. There's a couple which came to mind, very diverse uh, responses. One said lecture series. In fact, a couple of them said lecture series by well-known scholars <clears throat> on, <laughs> on discrimination <laughs> and racism um, to, to educate and enlighten us. Other people talked about um, sessions and short videos, digital content. Other people said uh, amending certain policies. Won't go into too much depth there. Other people said monthly <laughs> workshops. Other people said um, even ex physically experiencing race, uh, not racism, rather multiculturalism. So someone said, go and try other food, wear other clothes of different cultures and taste the beauty of uh, multiculturalism. Now, I wanted to open the floor basically to anyone and, and all of us just to share ideas, um, practical steps that we can take about how to reform the world we are now living in, given what we've seen with the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement, which again is not something new. It's been happening for, as a movement, it's been happening for six, seven years. And prior to that, there were movements for centuries, or especially obviously since the civil rights movement. So what practical steps can we do as Muslims of any color living in the Western world to reform the way we think? And also just to add on to that question, it like what can me and Ahmed do as non-black Muslims, as people who um, hold positions in these communities, what can we do better to make other communities feel welcome? Yeah, uh, thank you so much. Yeah, before Brother Ibrahim comes in, I think that's the crux of the matter, you know, the practical steps in trying to tackle the challenge of discrimination or racism or prejudice. You know, what comes to mind first is that, as we mentioned several times, currently we are dealing with Black life matter because Blacks have really suffered a lot, you know. Otherwise, racism is all over. You'll not come across a community where you'll not be able to trace you know, some racism. But black people, if you look at it in history, they struggled to deal with racism. But alhamdulillah, I must say, these past few weeks, ever since, you know, the death or the killing of George Floyd, we've seen people from all walks of life coming out and showing interest in trying to tackle this virus and this cancer of racism. So the practical steps I would like to suggest is not only to deal with the racism towards black people, but the racism of any kind to mm -hmm. anyone, because it is absolutely injustice as per the teachings of Islam. Racism is a lawful act in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the Holy Prophet made it very clear. So the first practical step to our beloved youth who are the future of our communities, you know, and of course to our elders also, let us start seriously going through Islamic history. To me, knowledge acquisition is the first step really, so that you don't think somebody is making it up, you know? Read the history and how the Holy Prophet fought the Jahiliya of racism. Because that will inspire you. Prophet is our inspiration. Imams are our inspiration. It's not just about John. 
Look at the coming of our beloved prophet, how those Arabs were and how he dealt with it. So that's number one, knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. We need to read. We need to read Islamic history. That's number one. Number two, people like us, like the, the preachers, like the speakers, you know, I think we've got responsibilities. Alhamdulillah, as I said in the past week, we've seen so many scholars, so many speakers on Fridays, on Thursdays, discussing nothing but racism. So we need to see more of this. And I like the idea of having series of lectures, you know, on racism and the repercussions of racism so and the damage we, of racism. We, we can get a yeah. shout out when you do the when you do the lecture. You can give us a shout out, inshallah. <laughs> yeah, <it's, laughs> absolutely. You know, you know, we need to give lectures like that. We need absolutely. like men, mental health specialists. You know what I mean? Not only yeah. the scholars and the doctors, you know, within our communities. You know what I mean? To come out and talk about the damage of discrimination and racism when it comes to mental hygiene or mental health of people, you know, how damaging it can be. Maybe people don't know how damaging it can be, you know. It's like suffering from Islamophobia, as I was mentioning the other night. This can also be damaging. So that's number two. Number three, podcasts like this, you know, to the youth, you know, do small, simple podcasts, for instance. Get, you know, a mental health or psych psychologist, for instance, you know. Ask him, you know, what is racism, for instance? Can you outline some of the damages of racism from your perspective? I think that's crucial. Or get a GP on board, bring him, have a small podcast on it with him. So this is something also that our youth can do. Another thing is to write articles. You know, simple people now don't have energy to read long articles, you know. Just something simple and appealing and straight to the point, you know. That also will help. But if you ask me the biggest one that our youth can do, really is to come up with anti-racism campaign. Mm. That's very important. You know, how you're going to do it is up to you. But come together, like-minded. What are we going to do to ensure that we campaign against racism of whatever kind? Mm. Some will look at having anti-racism policy in place or anti-racism officer in place, like I'm talking of organizations. Mm. But us as youth, we need to come up with a campaign, even if it's just sharing one line message every Friday as part of that campaign. You know what I mean? Or every big Khoshali, for instance, the youth committee will write something, get one rewire or get one inspiration from an icon or celebrity of whatever kind. But we need to see this thing continue, inshallah. And by so doing, I'm sure we'll be able to tackle this. And I know from this recent whole incident, there has been an organization set up for called Kodjas for Black Lives. So I think Mashallah. it's like an example of people taking heed and you're really? right. You need to do, yeah. Yes, to also. yes, it's true, it's true. Yeah. And Toronto, Toronto also is doing really something massive, the youth. Yeah, yeah for the youth, yeah. yeah. They've got the anti-racism campaign, which is going on now. And Ibrahim, from your perspective yeah. as a younger person, what do you yeah. think the youth can do? What can your peers do? Yeah. So um, firstly, I, I think before I get to the peers, um, in terms of institutions, so I, I see racism as, um, as, as a phenomenon which is um, institutional and systemic. Um, so people that are in control of organising and managing institutions should be very proactive in handling racism, especially because racism has been the premise of, uh, in one of the main premises or bases of injustice uh, in this world for over 400 years, for the last 400 years. So when we speak about injustice and oppression in our mosques and in our, in our lectures, why is it that so many of us are not really educated or, or, or have a good understanding on racial politics and how, um, how that has been the basis of injustice for uh, over the years? So I think when it comes to even even within our even within our madrasas, um, like uh, Sheikh Nouda mentioned, um, he, he mentioned education a lot. Um, within the uh, uh, within the history modules um, 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 in madrasa X Y and Z, I think people could really focus on on, on emphasizing on that aspect, so um, the younger generation can learn how to implement it within their own daily lives, um, and, mm. and as they grow up, they gain an understanding. Um, on the smaller level, like on, on, on the things which are more uh, outward and cosmetic, like when we're in the mosque many times in Ramadan, the person who um, 
who is making du'a for the Ummah. He would mention Syria, Yemen, Pakistan, uh, Palestine, all of the Arab and Asian countries. What about Somalia? What about Sudan? What about Senegal? There are many Muslims in those countries yeah. too, but they, awesome. never, they, 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 they never get a mention. So this, the mm. smaller things like that would go a long way. And then within our own communities or within our own families, I think uh, many people, I mean, yeah, for m many people may be shy or they may not want to cause problems, um, but at least recognize it. When you see when you see somebody make a certain comment or you see a conversation going in a certain direction, people speaking about um, black people in a certain way, people speaking about anybody, anybody else in a certain way, or even skin tones and complexions, if you, if you could approach it, you know, you could approach it in, in, I mean, in a polite manner and just try to really dig deep and drill down until the person understands. Ibrahim. You don't want to do that. If you can recognize that within yourself, you can make sure you don't perpetuate that. That reminds me of a story. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had one of Sheikh Noor's interviews where he said that there was a guy in Birmingham who he was traveling with and Sheikh Noor said to this brother, I enjoyed your company. And Sheikh, why don't you tell us? <laughs> why am I saying the story? Say it, say it. It's okay. No, no, to no, see no. If no. You... I've probably forgotten anyway. Bismillah. If, if you have captured it properly, then I will correct you. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> so from what I remember, yeah. you were traveling with a brother. You told him, look, I enjoyed your company. And he said, I enjoyed yours. Yeah. And he said, look, Sheikh, if I can tell you something. Sheikh yeah. said, Bismillah. And the brother said, look, a couple of years ago when you came to our center, there were people standing outside the mosque in a circle saying, I can't believe that this guy is going to be yeah. our alim. Yeah. And from that day, this brother kind of separated and distanced himself, socially distanced himself yeah. from these people. <laughs> um, and like, Ibrahim, I'm not sure. Uh, is that correct, Sheikh? Yeah, 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 absolutely. absolutely. Know, That's how I remember the story, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you uh, smashed it. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. But Ibrahim, if, if that's, um, is that kind of what you're talking about? Look, look the, the, the thing is, I was watching, for example, yesterday, a video on YouTube about microaggressions. And for those who maybe don't know what it is, microaggressions are day-to-day, -day, small and subtle, and maybe over or covert interactions with people uh, where you pose judgment of some sort. So maybe, for example, you're a teacher and in the classroom, you purposely don't make an effort to say a colored student's name properly, or, or like an ethnic student's name properly. Or for example, um, you give preferential treatment to someone who is white, subconsciously or consciously. Um, yeah. But Ibrahim, would you, would you say that those sorts of microaggressions even exist within our centers? And if I can go kind of one step further, um, we hear a lot of the time about, you know, um, those who are, let's say, like the majority ethnic group within a certain center, let's say, for example, the center that you and I go to, uh, should welcome anyone who is, uh, let's say, uh, you know, like, you know, potentially could be a reaver or someone who's a newcomer to the center who visibly looks different ethnically. But wow. the thing which always comes to my mind is like, I completely agree, we should be welcoming people who, you know, may look like they're newcomers to the center. But the thing that always comes into my mind is, Maybe there's a hesitance from some people that they don't want to be weird or seem awkward. Yeah. I, I don't know whether that's something we can talk about they, as they well. Don't want to seem like, they don't want to seem like they're treating that person. Especially. Exactly. Like you don't want to seem like you're singling someone out because of yeah. the way they look. Yeah, definitely. I think like, so So for me, like um, my family, uh, we being mixed Somali and Khoja, um, as you know, yeah, as mentioned, we grew up in a community and the majority of, 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 of that um, discrimination that you face is, uh, in a very subtle form, uh, in the form of microaggressions. And this is why it's very difficult for us to speak about racism and discrimination because um, people who don't face it or people who don't feel those microaggressions or those um, subtle um, you know, changes in behavior towards them, it's very difficult for them to, to be able to um, pick it out or to be able to notice it. And then for us to speak about it, a lot of the times it's because it's not so tangible, it's not like a direct, it's not like a word, it's not an insult. Um, it's very difficult to, you know, um, to uh, uh, to convince anybody that, that 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 is the fact. But I think if you if you do see if you do see that somebody, um, I, so I think it's important to be increase our awareness of how these like sort of subtle changes in behavior might occur. Like for example, a lot of the times these things happen when they're uh, in times of interaction, like maybe somebody is giving uh, giving out niyaz and uh, you'll see that they might make a slight comment or they 
uh, in the way that they present and you ask the one person may be different to another. I think if we see things like that, we should be proactive in um, trying to correct that situation by making sure that person, especially if they're if they're a newcomer to the mosque, um, does feel does feel welcome um, and, and and that they don't after that feel isolated because especially when you go to a new go to a new mosque or when you go to an area where you're in a minority and you you are aware you will always be aware that you're in a minority as soon as you feel that first you know a bit of tension or that first microaggression and um, you will immediately close yourself off um so i think i think being aware uh, uh, of that is maybe more important um than you know overdoing it because we don't want to get we don't want to get into performativeness i guess um we don't want to be performative and then sort of pat ourselves on our back and go home like for example yeah. with our organizations like we're speaking now um, a lot of us are speaking about issues of racism we're speaking about black lives matter um we can't fall into the trap of feeling like oh like you know we we, we done one or two things we did a um we don't, we we don't want to be a tick, tick the box. And, exactly. No. And, and now we don't, we've discussed it. Like in, in, in Flint, Michigan, in, in America, they haven't, which is like a predominantly black, black community or black city, they haven't had uh, drink, clean drinking water for seven plus years, right? But um, the council has paid to have Black Lives Matter painted onto the roads um, in huge. So if your statement, Black Lives Matter, um, doesn't actually have depth in it and it doesn't it doesn't mean anything and you're not actually you know working towards um, 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 um instilling that then it's it's just performative so words have to be reflective of actions yeah vice versa for sustained periods of time not just for two weeks mm, yeah we, we need to this anti-racism work is a duty upon us like Sheikh um, mentioned so we need to do better and I think that's all we have time for today. But I would really like to thank both of you for coming on, for sharing your experiences, but also for sharing your wisdom and giving us practical steps. And now I think we really have no excuse but to um, go forward. And I think one thing that I really took away from speaking to both of you is I will now make a more active effort to learn about a more diverse Islamic history and going forward, like decolonize my own Islamic learning. There's so Thank many other know. things that I think we wanted to cover, but unfortunately time has restricted us. <laughs> I know we wanted to talk about like creative forms of resistance and how we can uh, resist a lot of the discrimination we see. We wanted to talk about justice and Islam, inshallah, yeah. another time. Um, yeah. But thank you so much to, to both yourself, Sheikh Noor Muhammad. And thank you. Thank, thank you for joining us. It really thank means a lot. Keep thank us you. Thank you. And for those listening, please, um, as always, provide us with feedbacks, questions, comments, and any suggestions you might have for any topics or speakers that you'd like to see on the Hajjah podcast. We're growing, we're moving fast, alhamdulillah, but we're still very, very far from where we want to be and the sort of influence we want to have. Um, but inshallah, we will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.